Welcome to the Content Strategy Experts Podcast brought to you by Scriptorium. Since 1997, Scriptorium has helped companies manage, structure, organize, and distribute content in an efficient way. In this episode, we talk about the prerequisites for efficient content operations. Hey everybody, I'm Bill Swallow. And I'm Sarah O'Keefe. And I think before we jump in, we should probably explain to everybody what we mean when we talk about content operations. Content operations is the people, the processes, and the technology that allow you to make content happen. And some people will say that content operations only counts if you're actually working efficiently, so it's sort of like a best practice. But I would argue that content operations is is all the things. So in a world where you're writing things in Notepad and up converting them into WordStar and from there through WordPerfect into uh, some ancient version of PostScript for print, that is in fact content operations. It sounds like pain, but it is content operations. So what, you know, what we're looking to do in general in all of our projects is produce better, good, efficient content operations. So within content operations, you generally have four areas that uh, we tend to look at uh, to see how best we can optimize uh, those things. Uh, one would be requirements. Yep. One would be having a roadmap. Uh, another one is actually planning based on the roadmap and uh, the people involved. Right. And it gets very tricky very quickly because content ops sits kind of in between the publishing content production world and IT, right? And so the temptation is to say that, well, content is just, you know, a weird type of data, which, well, that's a whole other conversation. It's a whole other podcast. So we'll just set that aside for the moment. But the, the major point here is that when you start looking at content ops, when you're looking at content at scale, huge volumes of content in lots of different languages, globalization requirements. You have to think about delivery platforms. You have to think about video streaming, audio issues, transcripts, accessibility. And the volume of content that passes through a content ops environment uh, can be, I think, surprising to a sort of a traditional IT group. If this is your first experience with content and content ops, the amount and the complexity of information that we're dealing with tends to come as a surprise to people that are not specialized in the space already. Right. There's so many different facets to content and so many different ways that those facets can get leveraged and need to be leveraged. Uh, it's not just a not just a raw data store, even though many would argue that XML is just a raw data store. When you start looking at content operations, what you're going to find is that there are a number of uh, components to your content ops that are unique to, to a content ops environment. Yes, you're familiar with content management systems, but in particular, are you familiar with content component content management systems, headless CMSs? Uh, are you familiar with localization issues, what it looks like to do Unicode across 40 or 50 different languages? When you look at XML, XML for content and XML for data are in fact not at all the same thing. So you need people that understand this tech stack from a content perspective. And since 
80 or 90% of the work that we're doing is actually DITA, the Darwin Information Typing Architecture. Keep that in mind. A lot of tech people struggle with understanding DITA. And I mean, to be fair, a lot of content people struggle with DITA initially. So there's a lot there and it's complicated. Mm -hmm. There's usually an assumption that is made that, oh, well, DITA is just XML. XML is just data. So we know how to handle data. So we know how to handle DITA. And the two just couldn't be more different. Mm. Yeah, and requirements. So when we start talking about requirements, right, what are we talking about here? Not so much the tech stack, right? I mean, there, there's a tech stack requirement, but what's the what's the baseline where that you start from when you start building requirements? Right, and that baseline really does come down to the the business drivers for why you are doing the things that you're doing. And fundamentally, if all of your tech requirements do not meet those business goals, you've just wasted a ton of money. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I've told this story before, but a long time ago, I was working on a project and we were busy trying to justify the build, the system, which was going to be you know, pretty expensive. We were trying to justify it because we were going to have more efficient formatting. We were going to save money on formatting, formatting automation, get away from a very manual, you know, at the time in design, I think unstructured frame maker process, both of which were time consuming. And I've never forgotten, I went into a meeting with this VP and we were explaining some of the cost savings, which were really very much efficiency driven, right? And he stopped us and he said, look, um, we're, you know, we're a company, we're doing whatever it was, $10 billion in revenue per year. And of that $10 billion, at least half is international revenue, right? So $5 billion a year in international revenue. And he said, right now we have a six-month delay on localization in getting any sort of, and so we can't get any international money, right? You can't get international mm -hmm. revenue when you can't ship your product with content in German or French or Italian or Spanish or Thai or whatever it was they needed. He said, "If can you promise me that you can chop one month off of our six-month delay in localization? Because if you can, <laughs> we can easily justify this whole thing and you don't need to talk to me about this other complex stuff. Now, we knew that it's actually pretty easy to get from six months down to, say, two months without really trying very mm -hmm. hard. Now, getting from two months to two days, that that's hard. But all he wanted from us very was six hard. months to five months, which we said, well, yeah, I mean, that's easy. We can do that. And he said, great. Where do I sign? <laughs> so <laughs> ultimately, you know, the requirement in that particular case, because all of their growth was coming from international revenue, international non-US, non-English customers. So they wanted to focus on that. They wanted to deliver better and more efficiently and faster so that they could get that revenue more quickly. And my misunderstanding of the business case, you know, could have gotten us in real trouble had it not been for this person in, the, in a meeting who said, let me stop you right there because you're focused on the wrong thing. Tell me about this thing, which was easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was a, actually that was a good example of having the right people making the right decisions um, and talking to the right people in order to inform the right decision. Right. Because, and that, yeah, you know, from your perspective, yeah, from your perspective, you were doing the right thing because you needed to build efficiency and all this other fun stuff. 
Meanwhile, you talk to another person who's looking at the right thing as, we need to expedite our sales in a foreign market. How can you help us do that? Right. And and we were able to do that, but we had to get refocused on that correct baseline fundamental requirement for what they were trying to do. So I guess then the question becomes, you know, what happens when you don't have the right people asking the right questions? <laughs> right, because that's uh that really is one of the linchpins here. Um First of all, you have a huge learning curve for anyone who is not the right person doing the right type of work. Uh, they're starting for, from ground zero, uh, and they need to uh, they need to to basically escalate their knowledge and build you know their proficiency in uh, the work that they need to perform um, out of the gate. And generally, you don't have that kind of a runway. Uh, when you're doing any kind of an implementation project of any kind. Yeah. And I mean, it's common to come into these projects where there's not, and for us, right, we're consultants. We get brought in when that knowledge internally is missing. So it's really, really common for us to come in and have to build out um, a knowledge base and a skill set inside the organization so that the stakeholders inside the organization can make good decisions and can carry this thing forward. Related to that, once we've done that, once we've built a group within the organization that has this knowledge and these competencies, we want to hang on to them. There are very, very few things worse than losing the people that have that knowledge because they move on to something bigger and better and more exciting. And we have to start over with a new group and again, build all that foundational knowledge to make sure that they know what they need to know in order to make good decisions, right? Because when you come into a new area of practice, whatever it may be, you don't know what you don't know. And so you make bad assumptions. And if you make bad assumptions, you make bad decisions. And bad decisions are yep. expensive and time consuming. So I think- Very much. If, if I'm a, you know, a director or a VP looking at launching one of these content ops, digital transformation kinds of efforts, you know, look around your organization. Do you have the right people in place with the right skill sets? If not, do you have people that are, you know, that can learn this stuff that you can, I don't know about dedicate to, but assign to the project and for the long term, a couple of years mm -hmm. to build that community of practice, that knowledge inside your organization that's something that you know we spend a lot of time on we spend a lot of time focusing on but there really there will have to be that core group eventually unless you're planning to back black box outsource this stuff which is very very rare you need a group internally that keeps track of this stuff and manages it for the long haul building that into your team is it really is critical like you said whether you bring someone in initially to get the team up and running and have them learn or you have people with those core competencies already in house if you're missing those people that your project is going to you know very likely run over budget run over time and generally just be absolute chaos mayhem chaos cost overruns Work, rework, delays. I mean, these things are all, they're expensive, right? And, and they're not just expensive, Very. they're soul-sucking for, for everybody involved in the project. And it doesn't have to be that way 
if this thing is is planned and executed at the right level. And I will say that typically the people who get blamed for this are the you know, the people on the ground who are doing their best to try and do this stuff. But ultimately, folks, um, I blame you, the senior leadership, right? It's your job to plan this thing, to give people what they need, to make sure that they have the right skill sets. And if they don't have them, that mm -hmm. you support them in acquiring those skill sets, that you support them with outside experts who come in and can deliver on those skill sets, contribute to your project and do all of the things. The lack of planning, magical thinking is the thing that kills these projects. And then the people on the ground get blamed for it, right? Oh, mm -hmm. why didn't my tech writers do this better? Well, because you put them in an impossible to succeed position. Right. And it, to say that it's senior leadership's job to plan everything, that's a little um, a little misleading, I think. But it's their job to make sure that the right people are involved at the right points in the project to make the decisions and help plan the effort. Um because they are the ones who have the leverage to bring the right people in and make things happen. Yeah. It's, you know, it's enablement and we don't like enabling as a as a verb because it sounds terrible, but that's that's really a leadership job, right? Is to make make it possible. Mhm. Mm Clear the runway, get the right people in. Yep. So, um apparently I have some feelings about process and wrong processes. Um, the, the most common thing that happens here from our experience is that people pick the software, the technology stack first or too early, and then let that drive all the other decisions. Now, there are legitimate reasons why the tech stack might be a constraint in the sense of, uh, we're in group B over here and groups A, C, D, E, and F are all using the same tech stack and we need to fit into that. Okay, that I get. But what's mm -hmm. actually a lot more common is, ooh, I like this. I used it in a previous job, so let's just go with it. And that's yep. that's really not a good reason to pick anything specific. So uh, what happens? Congratulations. You just, yeah, <laughs> you, you picked the box that you can't work outside of and... <laughs> You know, not every box contains every single solution to every single business need. So if your business drivers require very specific things and the box doesn't have it, you're never going to get there. Yeah. And so, okay, so you, you pick the, hopefully you pick the correct box or actually you, you did your requirements properly. And then you said, hey, this, this looks like the right kind of system for what we're trying to do. Um, what are what are other things in the process as you move along in one of these builds that cause problems? Uh, a lot of it comes down to pretty much the same type of focus where you know you whether it's a big box or a little box, you're still picking the wrong one. Uh, so you know, for example, if you are combining content sets from multiple different groups into a brand new system and you spent a very long time, choosing the right system that meets the right business needs, but you don't do any upfront content modeling to see how all of these different groups' content will fit together in this bright, shiny, perfect box, um, you're going to find a lot of missing pieces along the way. 
you're going to find a lot of edge cases. You're going to have to do a ton of rework just to get this content to all interact. I, did, did you just tell our audience that they have to think inside the box? If they have a box, <laughs> they should think inside it, yes. <laughs> if you don't have a box, then think outside of it until you find the box that fits wherever you ended up going. <clears throat> yeah, the content model is... I mean, it's such a, a point of contention, right? Because if it's too strict, it won't work and people will do weird workarounds. And if it's too loose, it doesn't really help you because it doesn't constrain things in any useful way. And if mm -hmm. you build it out and then later you find edge cases that you weren't thinking about, you have to like stick a bolt on the side of the box and, you know, it's just, it's just bad. So there's the content yeah. model. Then you convert your content into the new content model, at which point you find all the things you missed. Exactly. You know, that is really the, uh, the aha moment when you start converting content. You go, oh, wait a minute. We didn't account for this thing that this group is doing over here. And they say it's really important. Yeah, so that's a, I mean, that's a tough balance, right? Because you want to build out a content model, start doing some, you know, prototype proof of concept conversion, refine it as you go, do the rework that's that's necessary. I mean, no matter how much upfront planning and analysis you do, you will find edge cases. The problem is the later you find them, the more expensive it is to either rework the content model or my particular favorite to just hack around them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the number of times I've seen output class used as a means to an end uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> it's irksome okay. um, so I mean we spent a really long time talking about all the terrible things that happen but what how do you do this right like what how do you make it such that your content ops project is as painless as possible what are the best practices well we talked about getting the right people involved at the right stages in the right project. But I think that is, that's something that needs to happen regardless, regardless of what you're doing. But as far as content operate, content operations is concerned, first and foremost, you need to have your requirements nailed down. And, you know, we're not, we're not talking about, you know, your requirements like, uh, you know, building out an agile framework or something like that to to build things out and iteratively, iteratively progress. But what are the high level requirements that are driving this entire initiative? So we need to go from six month delay in localization to five month delay or less would be better, but, you know, a one month improvement. Our system, you know, we talk about language support. We need to be able to localize into 40 or 50 or 75 languages. I'll add to that that one unusual requirement that will rule out a number of tech systems is multilingual authoring. Mm -hmm. So we've seen a few cases where the content is being created in, you know, most everything we see is being sourced in English, but English and also French or German or Chinese or Korean and you have to then have a system that will support authors working in those languages as they are creating content. It turns out that a number of um, CMS systems 
make the assumption that you have a single source language and many downstream target languages that you localize into. So it's a one-to-many relationship. If mm-hmm. what, in fact, you ha- have is a many-to-many or a few-to-many, you need to really pay attention to that. Yes, absolutely. So other things uh, that you really should do is start looking at your, you know, your publishing requirements as well. So it's not just the authoring side, but it's, you know, where you're going. You know, we talked about being able to publish out to 40, 50 languages, but what about seven, eight, nine, ten different types of output? Are you able to get there easily? You know, is there a limitation in the tech that you chose that prevents you from developing a critical delivery point? Yeah, so multi-channel publishing, integration with some sort of an omni-channel world. Incremental publishing is becoming important. So I have a library of 40 or 50 or 100,000 chunks of content. But what I actually want to be able to do is update one and publish it not ha- and not have to push the entire system or the entire mm-hmm. document that that one chunk lives inside of integration with other systems is becoming increasingly important. The ability to take a chunk of content, push it to Salesforce, push it to the main website, you know, where we're working in a, you know, perhaps a techcom world, or push it to e-commerce systems so that it can be reused there. Mm-hmm. And not only iterative publishing, but iterative translation as well. Because, you know, some systems, they're really great about you being able to gate very, very small chunks of of content or very, very discrete files for uh, localization at any point in time. You know, there's a separate workflow for each individual file. Other systems, they gate things by publication. So if you have 90% of your content hardened for a particular publication, you still can't start the localization workflow for that content until the last 10% is completed. And if we're talking about getting from that two-month to the two-week point in the translation turnaround, you're not going to get there if your system is gating by the publication level. So I think overall, I've seen a lot of I've seen a lot of lists of requirements. What you want to do is focus on the ones that are unique. So, you know, we need version control is not interesting to me. Everybody needs version control. And we want to be able to reuse content is is a little bit interesting, but not really. And we need variables and we need localization support. Those are all basically prerequisites to the requirements, right? They sound like requirements, mm-hmm. but not really. What I'm looking for is what are the unique requirements in your organization? So for example, um, we make medical devices and we need traceability because if we don't have that, we get in trouble with the regulators. We have a very complex content structure and the reason there's a reason it's set up that way and we need to reflect that in our operations. We need personalization. We need high velocity, you know, really high velocity. Those are the things that you want to find that make your content unique within the landscape of generalized content operations. And mm-hmm. once you've you've identified that that keystone, right? That keystone requirement that if we can point to this and make that successful, then we're good. That's what is going to help you drive the entire project and always look at that that fundamental foundational requirement and make sure that you're focused on it and meeting it. Mhm. All those little bells and whistles can be added later. They can be configured later. But yeah, if you're not meeting those high-level requirements out of the gate, you're doing the wrong thing. 
the summary of this this very lengthy podcast is you should plan. Planning is good. <laughs> planning is your friend. And if you don't plan, some very, very bad things are going to happen. Very much so. And while you're planning, make sure you have the right people doing it. <laughs> plan well. <laughs> Well, I think that will uh, be a wrap for this one. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Content Strategy Experts podcast brought to you by Scriptorium. For more information, visit scriptorium.com or check the show notes for relevant links. We did it. <laughs>